was the superior route to heaven. To worry about tomorrow and to worry about bettering one's social or economic standing was tantamount to faithlessness. Among the writings of the early apostles was Luke's encouragement to be content with your wages, which matched Paul's exhortations to be content with what you have and, having food and raiment, let us be therewith content. The Apostle Peter exhorted Christian followers to be content with their position allotted at birth. Submit yourselves to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake, whether it be to the king as supreme or unto governors. Servants, be subject to your masters with all fear. Wives, be in subjection to your own husbands. Younger, submit yourselves unto the elder. Paul also recommended submission to civil authority, perhaps in an effort to reduce the rising accusations of treason against disciples of the young church. Let every soul be subject unto the higher powers, for there is no power but of God. The powers that be are ordained of God. Unfortunately, this advice supported the doctrine of a divine right of kings, an obstacle to social mobility that persisted far into the second millennium. The libertarian writer Rose Wilder Lane, in her 1943 book entitled Discovery of Freedom, says that this pattern of submissive acceptance began even before the Christians, and that it slowed the progress of Western civilization for most of recorded history. Lane, the daughter of the author Laura Ingalls Wilder, who wrote the Little House on the Prairie series of books, was a San Francisco newspaper journalist in the early 20th century. Lane later traveled throughout the world, examining cultures, philosophies, laws, and lifestyles in her search for the best system of organized society. She went to Russia with American communist John Reed to help with the Bolshevik Revolution but she soon realized that aristocratic tyranny was simply being replaced by a communist tyranny, which was even worse. Lane then traveled through Europe and the Middle East, studying history and cultures, and there she arrived at some persuasive conclusions about the role of freedom in the progress of science and civilization. Writing during the Second World War, she observed, For sixty known centuries, Multitudes of men have lived on this earth. Their situation has been the everlasting human situation. Their desire to live has been as strong as ours. Yet for 6,000 years, most men have been hungry. Famines have always killed multitudes and still do over most of this earth. Ninety-five years ago, the Irish were starving to death. No one was surprised. Europeans never expected to get from this earth enough food to keep them all alive. Why did men die of hunger for six thousand years? Why did they walk and carry goods and other men on their backs for six thousand years? And suddenly, in one century, only on a sixth of this Earth's surface, they make steamships, railroads, motors, airplanes, and now are flying around the Earth in its utmost heights of air. 
Why did families live 6,000 years in floorless hovels without windows or chimneys? Then, in 80 years, and only in these United States, they are taking floors, chimneys, glass windows for granted. And regarding electric lights, porcelain toilets, and window screens as minimum necessities. Why did workers walk barefoot, in rags, with lousy hair and unwashed teeth, and working men wear no pants for 6,000 years? And here, in less than a century, silk stockings, lipsticks, permanent waves, sweaters, overcoats, shaving cream, safety razors. It's incredible. For thousands of years, human beings used their energies in unsuccessful efforts to get wretched shelter and meager food. Then, on one small part of the earth, a few men used their energies so effectively that three generations create a completely new world. What explains this? What indeed? To Lane, most of the answer lies in the energy and the institutions required to create wealth, technology, and philosophical insight. And she says that understanding these forces, along with that of the financial markets, will help us as groups and as individuals to harness that energy for ourselves. Of course, the incredible explosion of technological advancements did not spring up in just three generations, though the fruits did seem to appear rather suddenly. As Lane puts it, the seeds of this development were planted earlier. When a majority of men on this earth began to know that every man is free. The great revelation in her eyes was that all people are free to pursue their own best interests, free from the confining authority of governments and or religions that tell them to be content with the lifestyle or class system into which they were born. In this connection, Lane discusses the British Empire with barely restrained contempt. The English stand for the true values of feudalism. British government always grants that every individual in his class has human rights, dependent upon and subject to the whole social order. This social order and this grant of rights the English give to every Englishman and every British subject. A naked savage has his human rights in his class under British justice. The solitary British administrator, full of fever and quinine, who doggedly does his duty in a topi and mosquito boots, and rules and takes care of the savage, claims no more for himself than his own human rights in his own class. He does not regard the savage as his social equal, and he does not consider himself the social equal of an earl. In the sight of God and British justice, all men are equal. In this world, each man has his place. The concept of divine right, the notion that social rank is ordained by God, 
is found in literature as well, often accepted and unchallenged. Voltaire's Candide, for example, travels the world in search of fortunes that come and go, only to discover that his true happiness lies in returning to the farm life from which he started. Similarly, in Victor Hugo's novel Les Miserables, the protagonist Jean Valjean dies because 18th century readers would not have accepted the idea that a man of his background could live among the upper class, no matter how noble his actions may have been. By similar logic, readers learn at the end of Charles Dickens' Oliver Twist that the orphan protagonist is not the product of the vulgar masses, but the son of an aristocrat. So no wonder he has innate qualities of goodness, intelligence, and leadership. Dickens makes a similar point in Great Expectations, suggesting that Pip could have been happy only if he had married Becky, a girl from his own social class. This theme was common to most European novels of the 18th and 19th centuries. British literature has often suggested that the social classes are physically different and not just sociologically different. In other words, nature is stronger than nurture. For example, Shakespeare's works included many scenarios of mistaken identity, which implied that those born with royal blood could be detected by appearance alone even if they had been raised or disguised among commoners. The folk tale of The Princess and the Pea, in which a princess is sensitive enough to detect the presence of a tiny pea buried beneath 20 mattresses, may also suggest how earlier generations believed that social standing was not just an accident of birth, but was innate, physical, genetic. Social standing remained static for centuries but financial mobility increased after the renovation.